Let's pray together. Father, Lord, we do um, come before you now with gratitude, with thanksgiving in our heart, Lord, with praise on our lips. Lord, thank you so much. For the Lord Jesus, Lord, thank you for all of his great redeeming work. Thank you, Lord, uh, that because of him, one day we will wear the glittering crown upon our brow. Lord, and what a glorious thought that is, especially in a world that is so given to madness and misery. And we thank you, Lord, that we have this great, distinct hope, and that, uh, Lord, our hope is sure because Christ is our surety. So thank you for that, Lord. Bless our time now. We ask you to help us uh, just to know your word, to study your word, and to encourage and edify one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 So if you remember, going back to Genesis chapter 1, we have been looking at the days of creation and trying to uh, do at least some biblical theology out of these days that... By and large, as I mentioned, just to kind of recap everything, uh, that that the days of creation are pretty neglected as far as biblical theology goes. Um, You don't really have a whole lot of people writing extensively on the days of creation. And when they do, um, the whole focus is usually science. It's usually to try to prove that the biblical account doesn't contradict science, which I I don't think it does. Um, But then we have to ask um, some hermeneutical questions, right? We have to ask the questions, you know, when Moses wrote uh, Genesis, did he have science primarily in mind? Well, of course he did not. Uh, He didn't have Darwin in mind. Like I said, uh, you know, the days of creation are written for Christ, not for Darwin. And so, um, and that's, you know, that's a claim, you know what I mean? So we have to try to substantiate that claim and and, and eventually get there. But we looked at that already with day one, for example. We, We talked about the parallels to the Gospel of John in verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And we saw more than anything that all these biblical motifs are introduced very early here in day one. You have God as creator, and what we said there is that the purpose of God being the creator is that what we're going to see is that it's the creator who is the, the, the redeemer. So the children of Israel would learn that it was uh, the creator of all things who redeemed them out of Egypt, because remember they're receiving this right after uh, the Exodus. So right after the Exodus, they're getting the law and they're reading for the first time the account of Genesis, and they're seeing that in fact it was the Creator of all things that took them out of the land of Egypt. That He is the true and living God, and you know there's a lot of implications there for idolatry and what that meant as far as um, separating His people out of the gods of Egypt and those types of things, but it, it, it's much more uh, its much more serious than that, right? I mean, there is um, there are covenantal reasons why it's important that Moses retell the story uh, going all the way back to Genesis. You remember that? Um, maybe I could just give you one example of this. Turn with me to Exodus now, uh, just to kind of remind you of what is the principle that is driving uh, the revelation of God forward. What is driving redemption forward? Um, and I'm very, um, I'm very fresh in terms of my Old Testament theology right now because on the way home uh, yesterday from the Ark, I sat next to a 90-year-old Jewish man, um, and for three hours we spent um, uh, studying the Old Testament together. So. Uh, literally the whole time, asked my wife. I mean, I don't talk, you know, on a plane I don't talk. Three and just, a half hours. Three and a half hours, and I couldn't stop talking to this guy, or he couldn't stop talking to me, or whatever, take your pick. You know, it was back and forth, back and forth. Ninety years old, this guy, you know. 
And uh, so he was, what he kept saying to you, like, you better rest or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we'd go so long, and then he'd tell me, okay, why don't you uh, take a nap now? And, uh, <laughs> let's give this a rest. You know, he would, tell, he would tell me, let's give this a rest, you know. And then two minutes later, he'd be like, you know, the other thing I was thinking. <laughs> so he'd bring it all back up again, and here we go for another hour, you know. Anyway, it was really cool. But I actually pointed out this verse right here, Exodus chapter 3. And I pointed out to him a couple things about Exodus chapter 3. Um, and one of the things I told him, I said, you know, I, I believe that Jesus was part of redemption all along. So, for example, you have the uh, you have the angel of the Lord passages, right, in the Old Testament, where the angel of the Lord appears uh, very early on in the stages of redemption. He disappears, uh, I think, like after the book of Joshua. You don't really see the angel of the Lord anymore. So it's part of how God introduced his supernatural revelation initially was through, remember, we talked about this in biblical theology, if you remember, how he used visions, he used theophanies, and he used the angel of the Lord to reveal himself to man very early on. But I told him, I said, I believe Jesus was with Moses on the mountain in the burning bush. Uh, That's my position on what this is talking about. So, you know, that you can see that uh, in verse uh, two, right? Chapter three, verse two, it says, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of the bush. And he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire and yet the bush was not consumed. So I told him that. I was like, well, I remember the burning bush, but there was no angel. There's no angel involved in that account. You know, said, oh, you, you got to read it a little closer. So there is an angel and he's speaking to Moses from the midst of the bush. You know, so uh, anyway, so I showed him that. But look, look, we are really familiar with this account, right? Moses, the burning bush. And we are usually familiar with this account for, uh, um, among other things, we're familiar with this for apologetical reasons, right? We go to this account right here, if you go down to verse 13, uh, so that we can substantiate that Jesus, apparently, in the Gospel of John, uh, where does he do it? I don't know if you know the verse. Jesus takes upon himself the divine title, Ego Eimi, which is I am, right? And so we use that apologetically there, but I just want to focus your attention on verse 15 because it overlooks our notice a lot of times when, when the text goes on to say this, God furthermore said to Moses. It's like, what? You know, it says that. Why do we forget that God furthermore said something else, right? <laughs> we usually stop at I am, Right? And we're just amazed at that. But just, again, why it is necessary for Moses to retell the story all the way back to Genesis. It's because, if you look, what is driving the principle of Revelation is the covenantal principle that was began all the way back there in Genesis. God furthermore says, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, sent me to you. This is my memorial name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations uh, go and gather uh, the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I am indeed, I am indeed concerned about you and what has been done to you in Egypt. So there you see the connection back to Abraham. And so when I ask people, you know, the question, the, the, the you know, kind of a quiz, when you think of Exodus, what do you think about? And you usually think about Moses, you think about the Red Sea, you think about Pharaoh. But how often do you think of Exodus and make a connection to Abraham? Hardly ever, right? But, but when God appears, when there's actually this appearance of God, uppermost in God's motives are his covenantal commitments to Abraham. 
It's just amazing. So it's all connected back to Genesis chapter 12, which if we go back to Genesis chapter 12, of course, of course what we're talking about there is the promise to Abraham, which is connected back to the theology of the seed going back to Genesis chapter 3. It's just amazing, right? It's like um, God tells the children of Israel to tell the stories, to tell the deeds, to tell, to tell the, the story of redemption over and over again. Tell it to your children. The children of Israel were to tell it to their children in songs. You were to sing about historical facts to your children so that they would never forget the story of how God redeemed them and who was the God redeeming them. What was the creator of all things? That was the God who was redeeming them. Uh, any comments, questions, things that come to your mind? Anything? It's okay. We can share with one another, edify each other. One yes, thing sir. Comes to my mind yes, sir. Is, um, <clears throat> when did they start actually teaching out of a scroll? Out of, do you know? Out of a, out of a, a paper scroll, out of a material scroll. R- rather than storytelling or just teaching in word of mouth. Mm. Um, Sorry, just bring that on. I'll just yeah, ask for a question. Yeah, I would say very early on. I think very early on. I mean, I think you have evidence of that in the book of Job. That would take you all the way back to the time of Abraham. But even before then, I mean, I think there was writing material way before that. I mean, I just came from the Ark Encounter. I mean, if if Noah can build an ark, he can write on a piece of paper. You know what I mean? So as early as Noah and before, I'm saying there's writing material, and they already have documents and writing, and you see what I'm saying? So... Somewhere in that ancient period of time. You'll Google it. Be careful. If they start talking about CE and, you know, common era, you know you're probably dealing with a liberal. Yes. In terms of song, you know. um, Yeah. And it's it's funny how, you know, people today would say that, um, you know, different studies come out saying that that song will stick in your brain. Oh, we know that. You know that especially because your little jingles that you have for everything. But you know what I mean? Uh you remember that jingle, mm-hmm. you know, and you, you can do Don't remind me, I lot of, want to forget a lot of those jingles. <laughs> <laughs> but, but so God in his wisdom, he, he knew what would stick. That's right. Amen. And talk about the wisdom of God, you know, I begin this section, uh, which I really want to focus on day two and day four together, and the reason why is because they have to do with the, the, the heavens, the heavens, right? So day two, let's just read that, I guess. Verse six, uh, Genesis 1-6 says, Then God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. Now, we talked about that, the separation of the waters of the waters. Actually, that phrase is repeated both in the Exodus account and in the crossing of the Jordan. So, uh, this is why biblical theologians are saying that when you see the Exodus, and when, then when you see, uh, in a sense, another uh, crossing of the sea, an emergence of the land, uh, what they're saying is that hardwired into the Genesis account is kind of a typological, right, a future-pointing event that just as the creation emerged out of the waters, as God divided the waters, so too the new creation in Canaan emerges as God again separates the waters from the waters. It's just an interesting detail, you know what I mean? I don't know that you want to build your whole sermon on that, but it's just an interesting detail. Um, and, and if there's one thing that I've learned from the Bible is that, um, you know, God doesn't say it for no reason. 
You know, uh, this, how many times God teaches me that lesson that, that everything in the Word of God has purpose. Everything has purpose, has a, has a place. Um, so anyway, um, it says, God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below and the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. Notice God. Okay, so notice that what happens is God, right, is going to make a decree. Uh, there's going to be an action, and then there's going to, there's going to um, then the event is going to transpire, Right. Some people are saying that this is evidence of God's kingly reign in creation. That is, this is like the this is like a king uh, issuing a decree, right? And then the events transpire, and then it says, "And it was so," just emphasizing that what the king decrees comes to pass, right? So that kind of becomes kind of a model for his kingdom of priests that we'll talk about later, namely Adam and Eve. Um, I think they. I think we could identify Adam and Eve as a, the earliest uh, concept of a kingdom of priests, but uh, we'll we'll get to that eventually. It says God called the expanse heaven. So now we have this concept of heaven, and there was evening and there was morning, uh, a second day. Now let, let's just jump ahead to verse fourteen because again, this is talking about the sky, what we would identify today as the sky, the atmospheric. Uh, expanse, right? But he goes beyond the atmosphere now into what we now identify as space, right? Verse 14 says, and God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let there be for signs and seasons or for days and years and let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens. And so now heavens is obviously no longer speaking about the heavens of day two. It's speaking about a different heavens. Well, what heavens is that? Well, space, right? And it says uh, to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning a fourth day. So what, what, what do we make of... What do we make of the, the presence of the heavens in creation? Uh, because what I'm going to suggest to us is that, in fact, what you're seeing in this original creation, remember what we talked about in terms of protology, right? Uh, protology is that protology points us to the future eschaton, Right? Already, And how do we know that? Well, because if you go to Revelation chapter 21 and 22, what you see is that Revelation 21 and 22, I'll put this up here for us, 21 and 22 is, uh, is, is going back to creational themes, right? The original creation. What would be an example of that? Genesis going back to themes of creation. Anyone? The tree of life. Right, You have, at the end of time, in the new heavens and the new earth, you have, again, the reference to the tree of life, which takes us all the way back to creation. And you have more than that. Uh, you have, in Revelation 21, you also have a description of the new Jerusalem that mirrors the description of Eden. The reference to the rivers, the reference to the gold, the reference to the precious stones, all of these things are referenced there in Revelation. It's amazing. This is not by accident. Uh, remember what Isaiah said, I make 
He says, I make the last things like the first things, right? I declare the end from the beginning, right? So I'm saying what's being declared to us in the beginning is that God is building a cosmic temple to the Lord. That the world, the earth, the universe was, in a sense, right, God's first type, if you would, um, remember our principle of typology, right? Uh, let's say that this represents the heavenly, the heavenly ideal, and that this is the literal, historical creation, right? And what I'm saying is that when the new heavens and the new earth are talked about here, let's say in Isaiah 65, Revelation uh, 21 through 22, this corresponds to the heavenly ideal, not to the historical type, right? What is coming, what is ushered in by the new creation is what was given in the original type. So the original historical creation is based off of God's heavenly plan and his heavenly purpose, right? And that heavenly purpose, we see it take place in the new heavens and the new earth, right? Questions? We have a question with that? Yes, yes, sir. Well, in the beginning... In the beginning. God has presented a preview mm-hmm. of what was to come mm-hmm. in a permanent sense at the end. I couldn't say it better myself. You want to trade places? <laughs> That's exactly what I'm saying, right? Is that the original creation, right, is a preview of what's to come, exactly. right? Uh, that God is making... You know, what's interesting is um, if you go to Revel, uh, excuse me, if you go to Genesis... Uh, Genesis chapter uh, Genesis chapter 4, verse 17. This is an interesting idea here. Okay, we've talked about this before. <clears throat> but what happens is that the fall, right? The fall, the fall affects God's original creation. Okay? And what you see is God's, if we want to go so far as to say God's cosmic temple, some even have called it God's temple city is what he's building there in the original creation. It's amazing because it's, it's city language happens very early in the book of Genesis, right? 4.17 says Cain had relations with his wife and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch and built a city. You see that? So when Eden, right? when Eden, God's original intent for man to dwell in, when Eden was lost, man took it upon himself to build his own dwelling place, right? A city, and these were godless cities. Um, This is typified by Lamech and his song, right, that goes attached to this. And then it is contrasted, I believe it is contrasted with the godly line of Seth. Verse 26, it was Seth who called on the name of the Lord. And it was the people of God who were called to dwell in tents, and they didn't live in the city. You see, so this is the city motif. This idea, um, this 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 that man takes it upon himself to build his own city, and this will happen again, by the way, right? In Genesis chapter uh, eleven, right at the Tower of Babel, man will attempt to build for himself his own uh, gateway to heaven, right? Um, anyway, just. Uh, let me read to you, for example, and just in terms of thinking about God's um, creation, we're talking about the heavens here, right? And what are some possible connections 
to those ideas. So if we think about, for example, if we think about, um, let's say the tabernacle, let's say the temple. So the temple, right, the temple itself has all these uh, parts to it, components to it. Um, what I'm saying, and not what I'm saying, but what others have said, and I think I agree with this, is that the curtains on the temple and the tabernacle were to represent the visible heavens, uh, were to represent the skies, the luminaries. Uh, Exodus chapter 26 repeats this over and over, that the curtains of the tabernacle, the holy place, were to be made out of uh, colors that were, it says on three occasions in Exodus 26, blue, purple, and scarlet, so that these deep blue uh, uh, pigmentations were, were um, kind of representing the sky, uh, the stars, and there were stars that were woven into the curtains, and there were cherubim who were also woven into the curtains. And so the cherubim are representing that they were flying, in a sense, you know, in the heavens are the angels, and in the heavens are the stars. It's really remarkable. So this is just a real primitive picture that God is giving us with this little structure known as a tabernacle, right, of what he did on a cosmic scale, when he built the earth, right? And it's also pointing away from itself to a future time, a future eschaton, right? Um, so let me, let, me, let me just read some scripture, okay? Psalm 78, verse 69. i just give you some scriptures and y'all can look into it and read it. Psalm 78, 69 says, He built his sanctuary like the heights. Like the earth which he has founded forever. The temple, the sanctuary of the Lord, finds its analogous representation in the created order, in the heights and in the earth. Right? Um, yeah. I mean, to me, that's profound. Uh, also, Jeremiah 17, verse 12 is another. Other instance. And oh, by the way, that language of the heights, he makes his sanctuary like the heights. Uh, in Job chapter 22, verse 12, that is speaking about the galaxies. Right? He makes the sanctuary like the galaxies. Amazing. Um, Isaiah 40, verse 22. A lot of these you guys know. And he who sits above the circle of the earth. What? How do we usually use this verse? He who sits above the circle of the earth. How do we use this verse typically? The proof the earth is round, right? See, it talks about a circumference in the Hebrew language. That's right. I'm not saying I'm not denying that, you know. But look what else it says. It says, and the inhabitants are like grasshoppers of the earth. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain. And he spreads them out like a tent to dwell in it. Right? And so this language uh, and these curtains, this is the same language that's used of the tabernacle and of the temple. Um, psalm 19, a psalm that we should all know. The heavens are telling the glory of God, right? We know this language. Verse 4, their utterance has gone out to all the earth. In other words, the, uh, this is such a beautiful psalm because... What it's saying is that the creation, without voice, without sound, without words, are speaking. 
Isn't that such a glorious description of what the heavens are doing? Right? It's not like you look up in the sky and there's like Hebrew writing up in the stars or something, right? But what he's saying is that without words, without sound, without writing, their speech never ends. Right? Marvelous. And he says here, and, uh, and then he says, and in them, in the heavens, he has placed a tent or a tabernacle for the sun. Right? Uh, just all this language. Now, let me read to you somebody who knows a lot more about this than I do. G.K. Beale. <laughs> he says, the curtains of the holy place, talking about the tabernacle, they were blue, purple, and scarlet, representing the variegated colors of the sky. And figures of winged creatures were woven into all the curtains throughout all of the tabernacle, enforcing the imagery of the visible heavens. Well, the visible heavens came into existence in Genesis chapter 1, day 2 and day, day 4. And he says, the lampstand had seven lamps on it. And in Solomon's temple, there were ten lampstands. If people were to peer into the holy place, they would see 70 lights which against the darker setting of the curtains of the tabernacle in the temple would resemble the heavenly light sources like the stars, the planets, the suns, and the moons. As a matter of fact, Jewish tradition also supports this. Uh, Philo and Josephus make the same statements about the tabernacle, that it was representing the galaxy, the stars. Uh, let's see, I have a note here. Uh, yeah, so when it says tent... I just made a note to myself that when, um, when, what verse? What, I'm looking at footnotes right now, sorry. Uh, Ohel is the Hebrew word uh, that speaks both of the tent of Yahweh in 1 Kings 2 and the tent of meeting in Exodus 28. When it says that God, says that God makes, uh, spreads out the heavens like a curtain, he spreads them out like a tent, right? It's the same word that he uses in Exodus 28 for um, the tent of meeting. You know, just is that all by accident? I guess that's the question we're asking. Now, how do we, again, how do we substantiate that from this we go to this, right? Turn with me to uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 2. Yes, 2 Chronicles. <laughs> Don't you guys love the Old Testament? Oh, I tell you what, talking to that Jewish man uh, yesterday, though, really um, really convicted me in, in, in a lot of, because I was looking for something in my Old Testament, and I was like, I can't find it. It's just like, shame on me. I can't find this. This 90-year-old guy is whooping me right now. I'm just sitting here, just like, <laughs> you know. And I was looking for, in Proverbs, maybe you guys have it off the top of your head, I was looking for in Proverbs where it talks, where it personifies wisdom, that wisdom was there with God at the beginning of his ways and all of that. Do you guys know where that's at? Proverbs 1 through 7, somewhere there. Is it? Okay, so I couldn't find it. I was thinking it was chapter 7. But anyway, I was trying to say how Christ is um, God's wisdom incarnate, right? And how Christ, who is the divine logos of God, was with God from all eternity. So anyway... I couldn't find it. Second Chronicles chapter 2, verse 6. You know this verse. You know this verse. And what I'm saying is that this verse serves a eschatological purpose. Second Chronicles chapter 2, verse 6. It says, But who is able to build a house for him? For the heavens 
and the highest heavens cannot contain him. So who am I that I should build a house for him except to burn incense before him? So here, right, um, uh, Solomon is thinking about building a house for the Lord. and He's wondering, how in the world am I going to build a house for the Lord? Nothing can contain the Lord. And he says, not even the highest heavens can contain the Lord. And so, you know, this is where I often come to the conclusion in my studies where, you know, I, I kind of have a little little game going with the Lord, and I say, I'm on to you. Because I think, what you're, I think I know what you're doing here. You built the world with the full knowledge that we would come to the conclusion that the world that you initially built could not be the world that you're going to build. Because this world cannot contain you. And so it must be that the original creation was pointing us to the necessity for a greater creation, a future residence of God, right? And what do you find? So, for example, you find that language, that same type of language, in the new creation passages of Genesis 65 and 66. Excuse me, Isaiah. Now, you imagine Genesis has 65, 66 chapters. (laughs) Isaiah 66, 1. Same idea. Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. Where then is a house that you could build for me? Well, he can't. And this is, this is very important because we talked about redemptive historical hermeneutics. Remember? We talked about uh, themes that are introduced in the Old Testament that are developed and that, that are ultimately future applied to Christ. Right? And his salvation, to put it, you know, in a succinct way. So Chronicles, I would say, Genesis 1 is giving us the picture of a finite creation. In Genesis, uh, uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 6, or chapter 2, we are told the creation cannot hold him. Isaiah 66, we are told that creation cannot hold him. And that a new creation is needed. And in Acts chapter 7. We sh- Acts chapter 7, right? Yeah, if you've got a concord- uh, concordance, you're way, you're way ahead of me. In Acts chapter 7, verse 48, that's right. You know, John MacArthur's correct. The most powerful study tool that you could ever own is the treasury of scripture knowledge. I think I just told somebody that. The treasury of scripture knowledge. You guys all know what that is? know what that is? Uh, like if you have eSword, free Bible software, it's usually on there. The treasury of scripture knowledge, all it is, is just endless cross-references. So it doesn't matter what verse in the Bible you're on, they'll give you 20, 30 cross-references to that one verse and vice versa. And it just goes on and 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 on. And on. It just never ends. And it's so beautiful because that's what the reformers taught us to do. You remember? The principle of the analogy of the faith. Scripture interprets Scripture, right? That's the most powerful tool to interpret the Bible is the Bible, right? Um, Acts chapter 7, verse 48. However, now why, does, now why is Stephen saying this? Why is Stephen saying, what, what brought this point about? Can you guys tell in the context there? Miriam, you were there first, so you've had the longest time to think about it. Because of the Jews, or? Okay. 
What about the Jews? Well, because I was their pride thinking that, that, you know, they knew the way, they knew God more than he did, that he did, they did believe that. Yeah, yeah, the temple, right, for the Jews, you're absolutely right, is they took so much pride in the temple, right? Like that was their center of worship, of course. But, but they had failed to see the eschatological purpose. And so what happened to the house of the Lord among the Jewish people in the time of Stephen? What did they turn the house of God into? A den of thieves. A house of thieves, Right. Uh, how does the NASB, not like the King, that's, that's King James language, there is. The NASB says something far more boring than that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't even know if it says that. I think it says like a house of business or something. Merchandise. Come on. Merchandise. There, something like that, yeah. Yes, that's right. But, but now you see why Stephen is having to bring this up. He says, however, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. Right? As the prophet says, he is, heaven is my throne, the earth is my, my, the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? Interesting. For my repose. So he's definitely quoting the Septuagint here. Was it not my hand which made all these things? Now, let's... Um, Fast forward, I'll just give you the reason that caught my eye. I just thought of it right now. But when it says, or what place is there for my repose? Hmm. Do you know that the Sabbath is a picture of God doing what? He's resting, right? But why is God resting in, uh, in the Sabbath? Is he tired? Is he tired? Is he tired? <laughs> He's done. He's enjoying his work, right? He's in repose, right? He's enjoying and resting. Do you know that in the ancient Near Eastern context in which the book of Genesis was written, not that we go to A-N-E, that's that's how they abbreviate it, ancient Near Eastern culture, not that we go to A-N-E to interpret the Bible. However, um, if you ever study the idea of a covenant... And if you ever study something meaningful on a covenant, you're going to study ancient Near Eastern culture because covenants was something that was very common in that day. They made covenants all the time. We have records of it. We have Hittite covenants, and we know the way they were structured. And guess what? They're a lot like the biblical covenants. So even though we don't go to ancient ancient Near Eastern culture to interpret the Bible, right, it does kind of help us to shed a little light on, 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 wow, this is an idea that the people easily could have understood, right? This wasn't like some foreign idea God had to introduce the whole idea to them. So the idea of God resting is something that is found in the ancient Near Eastern times of a deity resting in his temple after his work was done. And so that you know sheds a little bit of light maybe on what the Sabbath purpose is about, is that what we're finding is God in his temple resting after it's been all constructed and built and everything that he set out to make was made. So anyway, just food for thought. <laughs>
Let me read something to you, and it has to do with that. This is, um, this is by Desmond Alexander, uh, a book that he has written. It's called From Paradise to Promised Land. And he's citing a different scholar here, but listen to this carefully, and then we'll probably close. But it says, suppose we press the question, what sort of building is God making in Genesis 1? Although not immediately obvious, the univocal answer, excuse me, the unequivocal answer given from the perspective of the rest of the Old Testament is this. God is building a temple. The notion of the cosmos as temple has its roots in the ancient Near Eastern worldview in which temples were commonly understood as royal palaces of the gods in which they dwelled and from which they reigned. Uh, And then later the book will go on to point out and in which they rested too. That's kind of the point of the Sabbath. Furthermore, creation followed by temple building and then divine rest, there it is, I don't even know my own quote, is a central theme in Mesopotamian and Ugaritic mythology. So again, it's not that, oh, we go to mythology now to interpret the Bible, but it does help us to see this is something that was congruent in the time. It was part of the context of that day. These concepts of God, uh, of a a deity that viewed the whole cosmos as his temple. But see, here's here's the component that sets it all apart. The component that sets it all apart is eschatology. Because what eschatology tells us is that, in fact, this creation is not God's final temple, right? This creation is not the house that, 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 that is built for the Lord. It points to an eternal, greater habitation of glory. Uh, and he goes on to point out that the mythology had no such eschatology. The concept of a new heavens and a new earth uh, is something that is strictly biblical. Uh, one of the reasons why, if you think about, you go back to Genesis, did you guys notice, if you go back to Genesis chapter 1, you go back to day 4, did you notice, okay, just coming from the Creation Museum and having sat through Jason Lyle's planetary, what, what do they call that thing? Planetarium. Planetarium, Planetarium. right? Where they, they put you in a big round room and they move your chairs back and you... They make you feel like you're floating through space, and they show you the grandeur of the galaxies. It's breathtaking. There's nothing, I mean, people get emotional. It's amazing, right? Did you notice, though, in the Genesis account, did you notice how brief the Genesis account is concerning the vastness of of space, right? Look at verse 16. At the very end, I mean, we just got done learning that our sun, our star, is a teeny, teeny, tiny little star in comparison to the gargantuan stars that are out there where the sun can fit in them many, 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 many times. And then, the, you know, your brain fizzles out and, you, you know, you blow a fuse. You know what I mean? Because you can't even fathom how the sun can fit a thousand times inside of another star. It hurts your brain to think of it. But look at how it says it here. He made the stars also. That's it. Move on next. (laughs) That's it. And the Hebrew's even shorter. It just says stars also. Wow. Why do you think that is, guys? In the sense of our star is the center, our earth is the center of the creation, 
That's really good. I didn't even think about that. That's where I'm going. That's good. Anybody else? <laughs> Get in on some of that, right? <laughs> as magnanimous as the universe is and all the gargantuan stars, mm-hmm. and yet the focus of the scriptures is Earth. Yeah. And mankind and mm. you know, us and mm. being made in his image and things like that. Right. Yeah. What components make up, you know, the biggest stars that we know of and stuff like that. That's good. I I, I have no no problem with that. I think that's actually a good point. Yeah. Yes, miss, ma'am. Maybe because it's God. He made them, and they're like toys to him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tonka toys, right? <laughs> little Tonka toys, little Legos that the Lord is playing with. Well, when you're going on about um, the uh, heaven on earth and like heaven earth is right, and I was thinking. God has uh, made man in his image. Uh-huh. So what better other creature to dwell on mm-hmm. something that was made like heaven than a creature like God hmm. in his image? Yeah. I the, What I came away with was I thought what it, what it showed more than anything is that for God, uh, kind of connected to what Chris said, that the stars, not only are they not central, but they're not so significant that you need to worship them. Yeah. Because... Mm-hmm. Because worshiping the heavenly luminaries was something very pervasive in the ancient world, right? They worship the stars, they worship the sun, they worship the moon, right? And so uh, he's trying to show that they are, you know, far from being gods, the stars are kind of an afterthought of God. You see what I'm saying? So that's what some people, some of the commentaries on Genesis uh, suggested. And I think that's, I think that's about right. I think that's up all right. So, uh, any other questions? Uh, I have a lot of other stuff that I want to get to here, but that there's, there's there's no way to do. It. Okay, let me finish it with this. Let me finish it with this. If you're studying the idea of the heavens because we've got to bring it home, right? To not just the original cosmos, introducing the concept of the heavens, that the heavens are really sort of indicative of God's uh, temple that He is creating in the cosmos and all of that too. But but even the introduction of the heavens has a deep theology in scripture, does it not? It says that in Christ we are blessed in the heavenly realms. It says that Christ passed through the heavens, right? And so we really see that with the introduction of the heavens, scripture, a holistic theology of scripture shows us that Jesus Christ is sovereign over the realms of the heavens, right? He's sovereign there. And especially if this has to do with um, with the, the temple tabernacle language that, that uh, I think it does, then you have in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, Christ passing through the heavens as indicative of Christ going through the temple, the, uh, the tabernacle curtain, going through the veil into the Holy of Holies. And I think that's that's indicative of Christ entering into the presence of God going from this world into the next. Yes? All of it made me think of Hebrews, you know, 11, Hebrews 11, 10, I think it is, that says that um, Abraham, you know, he did things by faith because he was looking to a city that That's right. whose, builder, whose builder and maker is God. Was, was, was yeah, God. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, amen. So, interesting food for thought. I'm hoping it will all 
really, really come home to us, especially the closer we get to day six in the creation of man, and we really start understanding that the language that, it, that is used there about Adam and Eve, guess what? It has major implications for Leviticus. So we'll get there next time. I've got to prime the pump a little bit, get you excited for come back later. And let's go to worship.